Well, hello and good morning and welcome to uh, Passing the Baton Series 3 and this is number 39 and the title of this teaching is Jesus the Man, the man and uh, the subtitle is Until Shiloh Comes. The date is the 31st of July 2010 and this is the third in our studies of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first one we looked at His Majesty the King. In the second we explored Jesus from the Jewish point of view, the long-awaited Messiah of the Jewish nation. And in this study we'll look at Jesus the Man, which will bring together the other two studies. Jesus is fully God and fully man, as we will see. Jesus' birth came after 400 years of silence where the prophets ceased to speak to the children of Israel. He came in God's Kairos time, K-A-I-R-O-S, which is God's perfect time, when the common language of the day was Koine Greek, which is common Greek, which meant that the good news of the Gospel would travel quickly, far and wide, and be understood by almost all the then known world. God's timing is always perfect, as we will see as we go on through this study. From the fall and God's subsequent curse upon humanity and ground, man had looked forward to the day when a Redeemer would come, a man who would take back what the serpent stole in the Garden of Eden. All the scriptures that I'm going to refer to will be from the New American Standard Bible unless I tell you otherwise. So, starting in Genesis 3, where else would we go? Verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. As God selects out from all the nations a people to be his own through the patriarch Abraham, we see that it is from this called out people that the Saviour, Redeemer, Messiah would come. For there's a promise about Abraham's seed found in Genesis 12 verse 3. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in Genesis 49.10 we see a promise about rulership. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. As we saw in this last study, geographically Shiloh was a little town in the district of Ephraim. It was important in Israel's history because it was the place where the ark and the tabernacle were established between Joshua who took the land and the prophet Samuel and at that time Shiloh was the centre of worship in Israel. But it's not the place Shiloh which is referred to here. Referred to here. Shiloh means peace and Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So this prophecy is saying when Shiloh the Prince of Peace comes you will no longer need any other ruler. Jesus embodies the tabernacle, the ark, and all the fullness of God, and his rule is eternal. He is the God-man and the only mediator 
between God and man. Job, you'll remember, cried out in his anguish, Oh, that there were a daysman twixt me and him. Oh, that there was someone who would put their hands at the same time upon God and upon man. And Jesus is that man. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I want to talk a little bit now about apologetics. I hate the word, it always sounds as though we're apologising for Jesus, but it isn't that at all. It's a branch of Christianity which is concerned with proving the truth of Christianity. It's not enough to understand and know ourselves. We must be coherent and able to defend our statements about what we believe. But there is a caveat. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set him apart, always being ready to make a defence to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Don't stuff it down their throats. There are many views about Jesus, even within mainline Christianity. So it's important that we face, rather than skirt around, various viewpoints. To this end, we will be looking at statements like, Jesus did not claim to be the Messiah. That is a view held by some churches. This assertion represents a belief that the Gospel writers inserted such claims into the life of Jesus. And another one, when Jesus said he was the Son of God, he didn't mean to be taken literally. The New Testament language of the time, referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God or the Word of God, is metaphorical, not literal. And another one, some portions of the Gospel of Thomas, a text that the Church Fathers have always cast doubt on, are indeed earlier and more authoritative than the four New Testament Gospels. And lastly, a good one, this one, for modern-day Pharisees. Jesus never uttered any of the denunciations against the Pharisees found in the New Testament. These were put into Jesus' mouth by the first century church writers who considered the Pharisees to be competitors. I find it hard not to put an exclamation mark after that statement. And we're all sure, I'm all familiar, I'm sure, with what the theologians have done with the book of Revelation. Uh, it's all allegorical, it's all picture language, it, Jesus didn't mean this, he's a God of love, he's not a God of wrath, and so on and so on and so forth. So, historically, there has always been a debate about who Jesus was. If we are to be able to give a reason for what we believe, there are various issues we need to address, so it's important to know the historical Jesus. The one that we can prove from history. Jesus, the man, the man who lived and walked on this planet. And in order to do this, we'll have to set aside our Western way of thinking and look at Jesus in the culture into which he was born. He was and is and will always be Jewish. He's not Caucasian. In the last 20 or 30 years, tremendous advances have been made in what are called the synoptic studies. That's the study of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And a debt really is owed to two particularly distinguished scholars. 
One is Dr. Robert Lindsay, a Christian, and the other is Professor David Flusser, who is the foremost Hebrew New Testament scholar in the world. These two men, a Christian scholar and a Jewish scholar, came to many of the same conclusions about Jesus, what he spoke, what his lifestyle was like, and how he taught. They confirm for us what we as a matter of faith already believe. They confirm that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke, properly understood in their historical context, are incredibly reliable and accurate, and they do reveal the very words of Jesus. God is really big enough to protect his word, beloved. He really, really is. So all this is good news for us. So the first thing we want to look at now, um, looking now at Jesus in the culture in which he was born, is the language that was spoken. What was the language that Jesus spoke? Until recently, it was believed that Jesus and the disciples mostly spoke Aramaic. <clears throat> Whilst it's true that Jesus did from time to time make use of Aramaic, he would mostly have spoken Hebrew which was both the daily language of the people of Israel and the language of study. Outside of Israel, the common language was mostly Greek. The spoken language of Hebrew died out almost two centuries ago, not long after the death of the apostles. But today in Israel, you will hear it spoken on every street corner. The resurrection of the language was due to one Eliezer ben Yehuda, an ailing 23-year-old man who arrived in Jaffa in 1880. Though racked with tuberculosis, his passion to make Hebrew a living language again drove him, and he insisted that both he and his young wife spoke nothing but Hebrew from their arrival in their homeland. From this came the language which is spoken everywhere today, and in 1948, when Israel became a state once again, Hebrew was the tongue which was chosen. So today, if you visit Israel, you can hear the language of the Bible spoken by taxi drivers, shopkeepers, housewives, children, everybody. This is no coincidence. God wants his word understood. And although the enemy tried to kill the language, God overruled. And the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls helps to give us a much better understanding of the language of Jesus' time and the meaning of the words which we have in the teachings about and of Jesus. Behind the Greek of Matthew, Mark and Luke is the language these Gospels were written in, Hebrew. This means that with the proper tools we can understand both what Jesus said and what he meant. Jesus was fully a man, a Jewish man of the first century. This means that his style of teaching, travelling and even his dress was typical of the culture of the day. He was a Jewish rabbi, a teacher of the first century. And his use of parables about which much has been spoken was actually typical of the way a Jewish teacher would teach. There were nearly 5,000 of these parables in rabbinical literature. It was their way. They told a story to get a point across. But it wasn't how Jesus looked that made him unique. It was who he is. 
He is the Messiah, the Alpha and the Omega, the Everlasting One, and He is Lord. Customs From the beginning, his parents followed custom with their son. He was circumcised on the eighth day, according to God's covenant with Abraham. We find that in Luke 2, 21-24, reading from the New International Version. And on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And we saw before that they hadn't at this point received the gold from the wise men or they wouldn't have had the poor man's offering, which was a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So here on the eighth day, Jesus is both named and circumcised according to the customs of the day. And this practice is still followed by observant Jews. Jesus was brought up as a Jewish child in a Jewish family. He was taught a trade. He became a carpenter, just like his father. You'll remember from our previous study that in order to come into his inheritance, his adoptive father would take and train the adopted child in his own trade. It was all part of the adoption procedure to ensure that the boy came into his inheritance in due time. Jesus would also have been taught the Torah, T-O-R-A-H, the commands, teaching, instruction or law given by God to Moses and known to us as the Pentateuch or the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. It was the great duty and responsibility of Jewish parents to teach their children God's instructions to the nation of Israel. And it is very close to the heart of the Father that the things of the Lord are taught to succeeding generations. So Jesus would have been taught in just the same way as other Jewish boys, and he would have been taught the same things. Luke 24, 41-46, again in the New International Version. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among the relatives and friends. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus would also have been taught the Mishnah, M-I-S-H-N-A-H, 
a Hebrew word which simply means repetition. In those days you had to commit things to memory and the way you did that was by repetition. Speaking things out like our times table when I was a child until you knew it by heart. Didn't have computers and calculators in those days. So the Mishnah teaches Hebrew tradition in spoken form as distinct from written form though it was subsequently written down by a rabbi. Jesus would later have something to say to the Pharisees about their traditions. Mark 7, 5-13, in the New King James Version this time. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honour me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honour your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. What a clear division Jesus makes here between heart and head. What a clear division he makes between doing the will of God which comes from the heart and just following empty religious tradition. The Pharisees were rebuked by him because they held their own interpretation of Father's commandments higher than the commandment itself. Caught up in petty regulations, they put a burden on the shoulders of the ordinary people which Jesus came to remove. As I said, when put into book form, these oral instructions, combined with the commentary on the scriptures written by the rabbis and known as the Gemara, G-E-M-A-R-A, produce a work called the Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D. And Wikipedia says this about the Talmud and the Gemara. The Gemara, literally to study or learning by tradition, is, part, is that part of the Talmud that contains rabbinical commentaries and analyses of the Mishnah. After the Mishnah was published by a rabbi in 200 AD, the work was studied exhaustively by generation after generation of rabbis in Babylonia and Israel. Their discussions were written down in a series of books that became the Gemara, which, when combined with the Mishnah, constituted the Talmud. And it is to be noted that these are not scriptures, but interpretations, discussions and commentaries on the scriptures. So if you read them, then they are interesting, 
don't get too drawn in it's a bit like reading Josephus you can get into Josephus and, and enjoy the reading of it but it's not the scriptures so be aware that these are particularly man's opinion on what God is saying rather than what he's actually said and what you will be reading is the tradition of the rabbis in written form and the Midrash is a commentary on the scriptures produced by the rabbis and that purports to fill in the gaps not spoken or recorded in the scriptures so we've got these four things the Midrash, the Mishnah, the Talmud and the Torah all of which are Jewish forms of teaching interpreting the scriptures the rabbis were highly esteemed the Torah incidentally is the law that is not actually a commentary that is the first five books of Moses and the Old Testament is known as the Tanakh you don't want too many of these um, words you get confused but it's just to give you a flavor of what will be going on for Jesus so these men were highly esteemed and they were like judges in Israel in Jesus time sitting much as Moses to interpret the will of God in any given situation Exodus 18 13 to 16 it came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood about Moses from morning till evening now when Moses father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people he said what is this thing that you are doing for the people why do you sit alone as judge and all the people stand about you from morning till evening and Moses said to his father-in-law because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute it comes to me and I judge between a man and his neighbour and make known the statutes of God and his laws. The use of the Mishnah brings to everyday reality the practice of the commandments as presented in the Bible and as you, you will know Moses' father-in-law um, said to him why don't you choose some people and take the weight off yourself and you take on only the very difficult cases. So what it was was actually interpreting what God had said uh, for the people on ground level in everyday practicality. So this is what the Mishnah does. It brings into everyday reality the practice of the commandments as presented in the Bible and it aimed to cover all aspects of living to serve as an example for future judgment. So if they had something come up today that happened 10 years, 15, 20 years ago, they would go to the judgment then and see what had come out from the rabbis at that time. That's the sort of thing. It demonstrated the practical, everyday application of the commandments. We do need to remember that the rabbis were not spirit-filled believers, so they had recourse only to their own wisdom and tradition in any given situation. And it was, of course, about the Pharisees' use of the Mishnah that Jesus had much to say, for they'd added to the commandments of God, and he was scathing in his denunciation of them, as their works did not match their deeds. Their words, sorry, did not match their deeds. Though they placed themselves as judges over Israel, and we see this in Matthew 23, reading from verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore all that they tell you do and observe, 
but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. We'll look at that in a moment. They love the place of honour at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the offering, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And so he goes on. In verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 27, woe to you, and this is woe and woe and woe. And you can read it for yourself. He ends up, in verse 37, lamenting over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus hated religion in all its forms. He still does. So according to custom, Jesus begins his earthly ministry at the age of 30. At this age, it was said that a man was entering his full vigour 
and we see this in Luke 3.23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. At the right time, God's Kairos time, he enters the stage of human history to announce that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favourable year of the Lord. That's Luke 4, 18 and 19 where he was quoting from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favourable year of the Lord. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Luke 4, 20-30 in the NIV. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard that. They got up, drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Here is Jesus on the Sabbath, which was a sign of the covenant between God and his people. It has nothing at all incidentally to do with keeping Sunday special. Jesus is keeping the Sabbath by going to the synagogue synagogue and reading the required scroll for that particular day. Every Saturday of the year there was a prescribed reading so that in a year they'd read through the scriptures and on this day Jesus is handed the reading which is his mandate on earth. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. It was at this point that he not only began his ministry but began to attract the unwanted attention of the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees who questioned his right to claim that he was Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one, the King of the Jews. And the first thing he does is pokes them right in the eye with the fact that only an un a Gentile has ever been healed. That was what made them rise up against him. Naaman the Syrian was healed, referring back 
to Elijah and Elisha. So we can see from this scripture that Jesus was a good um, Jewish boy. He kept the Sabbath as was required by the commandments and on this particular one he reads from the scroll which speaks of himself as prophesied in Isaiah 61 to the astonishment of those present. So he does declare that he is Messiah. Jesus was anointed by and came to do the will of the Father. And not only did he come to do the will of the Father, but he came specifically to the Jews. His ministry was to Israel and the lost sheep of Israel. And later he will send his disciples specifically to the people of Israel. Matthew 10, 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus had almost nothing to do with Gentiles whilst he was here on earth. So he makes reference to the healing of the leper in the Old Testament to the fury of the Pharisees. They knew what he was saying. You've never believed and you don't believe now. Here I am amongst you. And he cites the healing of a Gentile. And we see this again in Matthew 5, sorry, I beg your pardon, Matthew 8, 5 to 11, in the NIV. And it's headed up the faith of the centurion. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished, and said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, just as Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And here's a significant statement. I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And here is making reference to that Old Testament scripture when Naam and the Syrian was healed of leprosy. And we find that in 2 Kings 5 verse 14. This is uh, Naam and now after a bit of argument. He goes down and dips himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. It would not have pleased the Jews who surrounded Jesus. He's saying, I've come to you and I do all the things required of your Messiah, and still you do not believe. But one of these occupying Roman forces does. And not only that, this centurion has such great faith that he knows if I just say the word, his servant will be healed. Again, he finds faith in a Gentile, not in a Jew. Double rat sandwich. 
It's an interesting scenario too because Jesus as an observant Jew would not have entered the house of a Gentile. Gentiles were considered to be ritually defiled and unclean and any Jew entering their home would have to go through a ritual of purification and cleansing. So here we're seeing the Jewishness of Jesus tested. Will he go against tradition and enter the house of a Gentile? You can imagine they were watching him. In the event the servant was healed from a distance. But it's interesting that all the way through his earthly ministry Jesus was tested whether or not he would keep the commandments of God. Of course he kept them perfectly. Even though he was accused of healing on the Sabbath which was said by the Pharisees to be unlawful. In fact touching someone to heal them on the Sabbath was unlawful. He did it by word. So going back to this particular story, the centurion asked the believing Jewish elders if they would go to Jesus and petition for his servant. Because this centurion was a believer, he knew about the Jews not wanting to enter the house of a Gentile, but he was a believing Roman and sympathetic to the Jewish cause. It's just an interesting insight into the culture of the day. The ministry of Jesus can be split into five major parts. He began his public ministry by preaching, healing and delivering people from demons. He called his disciples and then he taught them and the people. Mark 1, Pacey book this, uh, 13 to 41. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the sea of Galilee he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. But just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into a convulsion, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. 
When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill, and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and cast out demons, and he wasn't permitting the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. The news about this man travelled fast. Dress. What did he wear? One of the most beautiful stories for me is the one of the woman who touched the hem of his garment. And there is much in this to be revealed and as always the answer lies in the Old Testament. Let's pick up the story in Matthew 9 verse 20. And a woman who had been suffering from a haemorrhage for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, for she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. As Westerners, we can look at this and totally miss what was happening here. For instance, the significance of hem or fringe or corner of his garment. Why would that be powerful? How could touching that heal her? The truth is that when you understand what is happening, you see the wonder of it. All Hebrew men were commanded to wear this garment, and Jesus was no exception. Numbers 15, 37-39 The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot. So what this woman was reaching for was God's authority, power and commandments for living. If she could touch those, she could touch the fullness of God's power and be healed. That's where her faith took her. Firstly then, let's look at the authority that is vested in these tassels. And we find this in 1 Samuel 15, 26 and 27. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. To set these verses in context, Saul has been disobedient to Samuel's instruction, and God has rejected him from being king. As a result, Saul tries to stop, to restrain Samuel, and in so doing, tears the corner of his garment. And we see how revered these garments were from David's subsequent action and his repentance at cutting off the corner of Saul's garment at the instigation of his men. And we pick up this story as David and his men are hiding in a cave. At this point Saul is jealously pursuing David to kill him. 1 Samuel 24, 1-6 now, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took three Saul took three thousand chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men, 
in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me, because of the Lord, that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. And here we have a dramatic example of how these corners, tassels or fringes or hem, as they are variously referred to, are symbolic of both God's authority and his power. David's conscience is smitten by what he has done. Matthew 5 verse 40 If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. The garment which Jesus was wearing was a descendant of the garment which both Saul and Samuel were wearing. It was of a basic rectangular shape and it was normally made of wool with tassels at the corner. And these tassels were a very important part of the garment as we've seen and they were not there for decoration. The men of Jesus' day wore two garments, an undergarment called a tunic or a haluk, H-A-L-U-K, and an overgarment called a talit, T-A-L-L-I-T. It was a functional garment, a bit like a blanket, and it served as a coat, and it wrapped around you and kept you warm at night. It was not necessary to have a tunic on, as the tallet would have covered you, but Jesus said, if someone wants your tunic, give them your tallet also. He's saying, strip yourself, go the extra mile. So when this woman touched Jesus' garment, it was the tallet he was wearing that she touched, and she touched the tallet where the tassels were placed. These tassels are set, are a set width, the width of a hand, but they didn't have a prescribed length. And it was considered by some Pharisees, the longer the tassels, you've guessed it, the more spiritual you were. Jesus had criticized them for their hypocrisy. We've already seen it, Matthew 23, 5. But they all do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. So that's what is being referred to here. They were drawing out the tassels on the corners of their garments till they trailed on the floor. And that meant that they were more important than any other rabbi. That's exactly what's going on. So today, Jewish men wear tallets and we know them as prayer shawls. The tallet comes in all sizes and it's much more of a decorative garment today than it was then. It was very practical in those days. It goes round the shoulders and it's pulled up to cover the head when the men pray. And they cover their heads in order that they are not distracted in prayer. So there is some very rich detail here in this account of the woman touching the hem of Jesus' garment. And these tassels or tzitzit, that's spelt T-Z-I-T, Z-I-T, or fringes, 
consist of eight strands tied in five double knots and between the knots you have a specific number of windings. So on each tassel you have five double knots, four windings and eight strands. The significance is this. Five is the number of the books of Moses, the Torah. There are four letters in the name that God gave Moses, YHWH, Yahweh, Jehovah, I am that I am, the self-existent one, and eight is the number of resurrection. It's also the numerical value of the name of Jesus. And these tassels symbolize the most important statement about God in the Hebrew Bible. If we take, for example, the number five of the double knots and the number eight of the strands and add them together, we get 13. Jews count with letters, not numbers. Each letter has a value, so every word in the Hebrew has a numerical value. And this adds up to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohino, Adonai Echod. This is known as the Shema, S-H-E apostrophe M-A. Listen up, hear. An observant Jew still recite it several times a day. It's saying there is one God Israel, and don't you forget it. It's a repetition of the first commandment given to Moses, and the most important commandment. Put him first in everything you do. And the Lord's nature is revealed in these tassels. He, the Lord is one, he is eternal life, he is saviour, deliverer and healer. So as this woman reaches out for the wholeness, she reaches out for the shalom of God. It, by touching those tassels in faith, she reached because she believed she would be made whole, and she was. And it's not the only time that we see this. In Matthew 14, 35 and 36, the people brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched him were healed. I just think that is so beautiful. Reach out and touch the Lord as he passes by. You'll find he's not too busy to hear your heart's cry. He's passing by this moment, each need to supply. Reach out and touch the Lord as he passes by. So hidden in these simple words that we could miss so easily is our healing, reaching out for him. Now let's look at Jesus' teacher. We need to understand the way in which rabbis communicated and a distinctive Hebraic way of thought and speech is shown in Luke 2, 48 and 49. This is um, Joseph and Mary finding the, their son in the temple. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us in this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. 
And he said to them, Why is it you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? What's interesting is the way the conversation goes. His mother asks him a question and he responds with two questions. As you study the scriptures, you'll discover that Jesus often replied to a question with a question, which is not the way we converse in the West. Jewish teachers, in order to ensure that the students understood, taught by asking questions. But there is more in this passage. Jesus' answer to his parents is a profound statement of who he is. He steps out of being a 12-year-old boy of a Jewish family and makes his first declaration about himself as Messiah. In saying, I must be in my father's house, he's referring to three of the most important messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. The house, of course, is the temple, but what is important is the term, my father. Psalm 89 He will cry to 26 to 28 He will cry to me You are my father My God and the rock of my salvation I shall also make him my firstborn The highest of the kings of the earth My loving kindness I will keep for him forever And my covenant shall be confirmed to him He will call to me and say you are my father Messiah will call upon God and refer to him as my father. God was not known in the Old Testament as father. He was a husband to Israel. 2 Samuel seven thirteen and 14 He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Psalm 2 verse 7 I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the concept of the Messiah being a son. God says, You are my son. And this, of course, is also established in Luke three, twenty-one and 22. Now when all the people were baptised, Jesus also was baptised. While he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. As I have already said, a rabbi or a teacher would ask a disciple a question and then the disciple would show he would understood what was being said by answering the question with another question. A good example is in Luke 20. Here the scribes and the Pharisees have been questioning Jesus to see if they can trip him up because of his claim to be the long-awaited deliverer of Israel, the Messiah. Luke 20, 41-44 Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they did not have the courage to question him any longer about anything. Then he said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? Jesus the teacher, testing the people's understanding of scripture, quotes from Psalm 110. And in Luke 22:69 and 70, 
But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said to him, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. What Jesus is saying here is that if Messiah is the son of David, how come he existed before David? And in Luke 22, Jesus didn't use the word Messiah because this term wasn't used in everyday language. But by using the phrase son of man, he made clear reference to himself as the Messiah, which angered the scribes and the Pharisees and teachers of the law, but delighted the ordinary people. So here, Jesus uses the messianic term, son of man, and they reply with son of God. You remember we studied these two terms when we looked at the first teaching in this series, Jesus as King. And here he's saying unequivocally, I am the one you have waited for, I am he. And it infuriates them. Luke twenty-two seventy-one. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his very own mouth, and they are set for his destruction. So we're looking at Jesus as teacher. Matthew nineteen sixteen. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? The rich young ruler calls Jesus teacher or rabbi. Matthew twenty-two thirty-five and 36. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And you can see further references to teacher in Luke twelve thirteen, Luke nineteen thirty-nine, Luke twenty twenty-seven and 28, and Mark six thirty-eight. In Jesus' time, the term rabbi was one of deference to their knowledge, and it had two meanings, both master and teacher. The term rabbi is a term of respect. It's, it's, it isn't a formal title like reverend or pastor, and it's not the same as it is understood today. That today, the term means someone who is ordained. And the term master was used in two uh, contexts. First, by slaves of their owners and the second by disciples of their teachers. So rabbi means my teacher, my master and you will hear Mary variously calling him master and teacher. What about the lifestyle of a rabbi? In the time of Jesus a rabbi was typically itinerant. He walked about Jesus, we know, went around teaching throughout the countryside, so his pattern of ministry is typically an Old Testament pattern. It's the pattern of the prophets. They did the same thing, travelling around the countryside, teaching and proclaiming. He taught in people's homes, Luke 10, 38 and 39. Now as they were travelling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. He taught in the synagogues. Matthew 4.23 Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. 
he taught in the temple courts. Matthew 21, 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? He taught outside on a mountain or hilltop. Matthew 5, 1 and 2. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Another time he taught in a boat, Luke 5, verse 3. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. So we see Jesus was a travelling teacher. He wanted to be where the people were. He wanted to change the lives of the people, so he went to them. Rabbis were poor. They were dependent on the hospitality of others, and their lifestyle was hard, even by first century standards. They usually carried a bag with some grain and maybe a few olives to sustain them. They dressed simply. We know that Jesus had one seamless garment at his crucifixion, and you remember that the soldiers cast lots for it rather than part it. John 19.23, King James Version Then the soldiers, when they'd crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was at without seam, woven from the top throughout. The lifestyle of a rabbi was not to be envied. It was demanding and hard and difficult. Dependent on those who wanted their teaching, they would travel from place to place. This is why Jesus tells his disciples whom he was sending out in Matthew 10:14, Mark 6:11, and Luke 9, Luke 9 verse 5. And as for those who don't receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They were dependent on the hospitality of those who wanted to study their teaching. And in Luke 8, 1-3, we're told about the ministering women. Soon afterwards he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. These women were supporting Jesus the rabbi, and by so doing they were laying up treasures in heaven because they were giving to the